Welcome back to the Gen Z Speaks podcast. Before we delve into this week's episode, I wanted to give you guys a quick background slash uh, intro to Paul Niehaus, our guest for today's podcast. Unfortunately, because of internet and Zoom connectivity problems, the intro part of the podcast got cut off when we first initially interviewed uh, Paul Niehaus back in the summer of 2021. And so Without further ado, here's a quick uh, introduction on Paul Niehaus. Paul uh, went to Harvard, got his um, bachelor's from there, and got a PhD in economics from there as well. He started off by co-founding a couple of fintech companies with some of his friends at Harvard and then transitioned into a career in academics. He currently teaches economics at UC San Diego. And he part of the reason why we had him on the podcast was he researches and examines uh, the design, implementation, and impact of anti-poverty programs at really large scales. And one of the solutions that he's been um, you know, studying and publishing a lot of papers on is Universal Basic Income, UBI. And he actually co-founded Give Directly, which is a leader in terms of giving payments directly to people. It's an international NGO. And they've given over, I think, $500 million in the last decade alone uh, of con- unconditional direct digital transfer payments to people in East Africa. And he, you know, Paul is just a really smart guy who knows what he's talking about and has had a prolific career researching UBI and other things in economics. And so Matt Jenish and I really wanted to have him on the podcast and just talk about economics UBI and some other things. So we hope you enjoy. And lastly, I know I've been talking a lot, but we will be releasing an episode um, on our weekly commentary that, like we usually do in the next three or four days. Our apologies for the delay. Life's been getting a little busy, but uh, you know we take full responsibility. We should be you know, releasing the uh, podcast weekly, but hopefully we will in the next four or five days. So we hope you enjoy. Paul, thank you so much for coming on, man. We appreciate you. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to be here. Let's dive right in. Um, obviously, your you know your personal experience and this the current roles that you're involved in, you know, from leading and being the chairman at Give Directly to teaching economics to being the CEO of two fintech companies. Um, my question in general is, what drew you to economics, and why did you decide to like take on different roles uh, within your capacity as a, as an academic teacher? Yeah, uh, well, you know, fortunately, first fortunately for me, I was not the the CEO of the fintech companies that uh, Michael, my co-founder, and I got started. Um, so, uh, for, fortunately for me and for the companies as well, I think. Um, but I did get to play a, an integral role in getting those up and up and running, and that was a tremendous experience. So, um, I've always, you know, sort of felt myself at this boundary between thinking and doing. Um, and actually, when I was deciding what to do after college, this to me was the core tension. I was trying to decide whether you know, I knew I wanted to get into international development work and work on accelerating the end of extreme poverty. And I was trying to figure out whether I should go get the PhD and do that and sort of start primarily as a thinker um, or uh, go get some operational skills and figure out how to get things done. And, um, you know, I remember getting some really good advice from, uh, you know, you talk to a bunch of people about these things and you know, big life decisions and the, the reality is nobody knows. But, um, but you know, one, one piece of advice I got that turned out to be very good was from someone who said, you know, it's a lot easier to go from thinking into doing than the other way around. So keep that in mind. And so it's a very simple point about option value. But, you know, for me, it's very much played out that way in the sense that I think, um, you know, being a part of the research community has been uh, wonderful. 
And it's been an exciting time with the advent of experimental testing. People start starting to run randomized controlled trials for the first time. And that was really taking off about the time that I was in grad school. Um, but I've also always felt that when you know you see something in that research and that evidence that you know should imply something that should be happening that isn't, that there's then an opportunity to jump in and get your hands dirty and to do that as well. And so that was very much the case with GiveDirectly. And then GiveDirectly also led to Segovia and to TapTap, you know, sort of one pro problem, one opportunity really begets another as you see the adjacent spaces that, that need to get filled. So I, th I think let's, let's drive right into your research. Um, a lot of your recent research focuses on UBI, particularly its impact during the pandemic. Um, over the course of your research on this particular topic, uh, what have you found that, that that's rather um, you know, that defies kind of the norms of how people usually conceive of UBI, specifically during these unconventional times. Yeah, I'd say, you know, a few things. So first, you know, a lot of my recent work has been, you know, some of it has been on cash transfers or things that look like UBI. A lot of it has been on sort of very large scale experiments where, you know, we're not saying what happens to one family when they get some money or one person when they get some money, but like what happens to a community or what happens to a district? How does the entire you know, shape and structure of the economy change in response to that. And so, you know, I just want to preface everything by saying that because that's really exciting and relatively new that we're able to run experiments at that level and start to see things like, you know, what happens to the, to the economy as a whole. Um, and so I think that's been one of the big lessons from some of these projects that I've been involved in looking at the impacts of cash transfers. Um, to be clear, we're looking at impacts here in sort of fairly rural parts of developing countries, you know, Western Kenya, places like that. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to see things like people getting out of farming and into other occupations that, you know, maybe don't apply to an experiment in San Diego or in LA or someplace like that. Um, but, you know, I think that's been one of the big ones that you see these sort of really large impacts on economies. You see people switching into different sectors, different occupations. You see output increasing. Um, and so, you know, some of that is because people are working a bit more. Um, and I suppose for many people, that's one of their core questions about something like uh, UBI is, you know, are people going to stop working? And in, you know, the emerging markets, we actually tend to see the opposite, that if anything, when you give people money, they work a bit more. Um, and I think often that's because there are things they want to do and they lack the capital to do them. And when they have money, they're able to do them. And so, you know, so part of it is because of that, but I think also part of it is because there's just a lot of underutilized capacity in these, you know, rural economies. You have little shops where people sit and they wait for a customer to come by. And when there aren't that many customers, there's not that much business. And when there are more customers, you can do more. And so um, I think that sort of very simple truth about the way things work um, has actually been to me one of the most prominent things that we've been learning about. Um, I know you asked about during the pandemic specifically, and so, you know, this has been a, a fairly small slice of what we've done with the Basic Income Project in Kenya. We're looking right now at the big, the big round of data collection that we did, sort of working on the paper, the write-up of that. But uh, we did do this round of data collection during the pandemic, and, you know, of course, that took us by surprise like everybody else. So when we set up this project, we weren't expecting it to be a project about, you know, basic income and pandemics. But, but we had this opportunity to sort of see how is life different for people that are getting basic income and had been getting it before the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I think there are a few things that are interesting. You know, we look at whether they're better off on sort of basic measures of health and well-being. It seems like they are. Um, we look at whether they're sort of out interacting more, contributing, you know, whether are they, is it impacting social distancing essentially? And, and it seems like um, if anything, they're probably out interacting a bit less. So from a public health perspective, I think those results were important. Those are things that we wanted to share with governments in the, the countries where we're working. But, um, you know, to me, probably the biggest picture thing that came out of that uh, side project was, 
you know, we'd seen a bunch of these people create small businesses before the pandemic. And then you see that when the pandemic hits, and especially the lockdowns, right, it's not the virus per se, but it's the restrictions on mobility and business openings, these businesses just totally flatline, along with everybody else's business. So the extra money they had been making just goes away. But then what you also see is that there's less of an impact on their food security, their ability to put food on the table and feed their families. And it's not that they're doing well, you know, or that they're sort of not having issues with hunger. They are, uh, but less so than other people. So, so I think you sort of see a little bit of this idea of UBI as a way of insuring yourself and letting you take some risks, like starting a business and knowing that you'll still be able to put food on the table, um, even if things go really poorly. It just happened that in this case, it was a much, you know, much bigger risk than any of us had anticipated we'd end up studying. Yeah, Paul, that was a lot to dissect there, but. Um... You know, kind of getting to the fundamental level, you said you guys uh, did a lot of experiments, and I kind of wanted to ask you about, uh, in a traditional, you know, traditional and close um, field of science, you see that we have uh, controlled experiments. You know, we have um, experiments, uh, for example, in like a biology lab with petri dishes and you know, controlled variables, independent variables. How are experiments different in the field of economics? What what uh, what differences are there with other you know contrasting to other fields of science? Great. Well, you know, first, um, you know, thanks for that question. And the first thing I'd say is just for folks to be aware that it's a relatively new thing for economists or for social scientists to do experiments at all. And especially in my field of international development, it was really only around 2000 or so that this started to take off. And of course, it was recognized a couple of years ago with the Nobel Prize. Um, to uh, Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, Michael Kramer, um, which is great. But you know, I think a lot of people have the sense that we've been at this problem of international development and global poverty reduction for 60, 70 years, and we've learned a lot. Um, and you know, certainly that's true. There are things we've learned along the way, but we actually didn't start testing our theories of change in a rigorous way until about 20 years ago. And so I think that's important context for people to have. I think a lot of the received wisdom, the things that we thought we knew at that point of time, um, turned out to be uh, not to be true. Um, and, you know, certainly I think one of those was, oh, you can't just give money to people because they're not going to use it in sensible ways. Um, that, that is very much not turned out to be true, I think, in the experimental data. So, but, you know, to get to your technical question, um, Janish, I think that um, in, you know, a lot of other hard sciences, there are opportunities to run experiments where you can really control almost everything except for the variable you're interested in. And in economics, that's going to tend to be less so. You know, sometimes we get a bit more that way where we'll bring people into a lab setting. You know, you may have these opportunities to participate in lab studies on your campus. And you know, there we'll try to minimize all the variation and all the variables except for the things that we're interested in. But even so, you know, people are different. We don't know that. We're going to assign some person to treatment A and some people to treatment B. And you know, one person may be a risk-loving person, the other people person might hate taking risks, and, and we just don't know that, right? And so we can't control all of those things to the same degree of precision that you could in a, you know, in a physics experiment or a chemistry experiment. And when we get out into the field, you know, we're doing experiments out in the countryside and Kenya or India, places like that, then even more so, there are lots of these other things. Um, and so, you know, what that means is that we can still estimate effects, you know, and, and kind of identify the average impacts of the things we're studying. But we have to be much more aware, I think, of the context in which we're working and think about, we see these impacts here, but how might the impacts look different in a different place where these other parameters were different? I want to I go back to the, the, the concept of UBI. And I think a lot of Americans uh, are more uh, you know, aware of that concept because of the stimulus check payments. And we're more receptive to this idea of, of, of a federal government, a centralized source giving us uh, a, a consistent round of money. 
but but I think a lot of people, you know, think that UBI is this new concept, right? That that hasn't really existed before, and that's going to be farther from the truth, right? I mean, Thomas Paine wrote about the concept of basic income in his book. MLK was a champion uh, of basic income, and, and a lot of uh, you know politicians and academic researchers have been looking into UBI itself. You mentioned this in your last comment that you know, the results obviously vary from different experiments in terms of how people use, uh, use a basic income. In, in your research, have you, uh, you know, you obviously mentioned and a lot of research has established that people don't just, you know, use this money to waste. They actually use it for basic necessities. And this money, uh, even if it's a limited amount of money, it, go, it can go a long way. And so in your different experiments in Kenya and India, have you noticed any similarities between how people use this money? Do most people use this money for basic necessities or are there any uh, you know, varying outliers in your data so far? Yeah, there's a real range. And I think that's an important part of the story. And, and you know, part of the point right, of giving people money is that not everybody is gonna wanna do the same thing with it. So um, you know, one example that I like is, uh, is buying livestock. So a lot of people live in sort of rural communities you know, it's a typical thing in, in a project that Give Directly runs. We might see 30 or 40% of the people spend a meaningful amount of their money on purchasing livestock. And that's an interesting one because, you know, you probably know there are a lot of other programs out there that solely do that. They give people livestock and training on how to raise it. And that's sort of their intervention, their focus. And so when I see a number like that, I say, you know, well, on the one hand, it's not crazy to think that, you know, giving people livestock could be helpful to them because clearly a lot of people actually want to do that themselves. But on the other hand, it's not everybody, right? And there are other people for whom the priority is literally just getting food on the table for their kids, paying school fees. Uh, there are people that are going to you know, start some other business or they're going to rebuild a house because their house is falling apart. And so there's this real richness. And it's really, you know, it's kind of like if you look around yourself, if you look at the people that you know, to see how differently different people spend their money, what their priorities and values are, there's a lot of variety in human nature. And I think you see that in these cash transfer uh, programs and that that's uh, you know it's for me as a researcher what make can make them challenging to sum up and describe in a concise way for people but I think it's it's part of the point of it yeah you know uh, focusing on UBI do you think uh, there's a long-term impact that's going to um, I mean and this is kind of a hard question because you know you can't predict what's going to happen in the future but from your intuition do you think UBI would have any uh, radical disadvantages later down in the later down in the future, or what your yeah, I think I mean if you think just in terms of the impacts on people who are getting it, um, you know we do have some studies now that have looked at been able to trace out impacts not just on you know the people that receive transfers but even on their kids. In the U.S., there's a study of you know kids whose moms received pensions back in the 1920s and 1930s, and people were able to follow them and see how much longer they live, things like that. So, you know, we have some bits and pieces like that where we're able to trace it out. Um, I think that um, one thing that's exciting about the project that we're running in Kenya right now is that in a sense, we can get um, a feeling for how the future matters now. And so what I mean by that is we have a group of people, a group of communities where everybody's getting transfers for the next 12 years at a minimum, you know, where we've made that commitment to them. And so they know that, you know, whatever happens, you know, to the extent that they trust us, that money's still going to be there. Um, to meet basic needs. We also have an arm where we've only committed to two years of transfers. And so what that means is we can look at people after a year and a half, say, and say, here are people that have received the same amount of money. So in terms of dollars into the pockets, these guys look exactly the same. But the difference is that in one group, they expect the transfers to continue. And we can ask, does that matter? Right? Does it matter that you know that it's there in perpetuity? 
And you know, by the way, this is important because there are so many of these pilots going on and they're interesting. There are things to be learned from each of them, but by and large, all of these are very short-term pilots, right? Committing to giving people money for a year, two years, something like that. Um, and you know, that's in the nature of a pilot, right? That is short-term. But what that means is we're not really seeing in those pilots the impact of this long-term commitment of somebody knowing like, I know that for the next decade, right? If I take risks, if something doesn't work out, I'm gonna have something to fall back on. Um, and so, you know, sneak preview, we don't, we're not publishing the results yet, but the you know, short answer is yes, we're seeing differences between those arms. We're seeing that it does matter, um, those expectations of the future. So since there are uh, advocates for not only universal basic income, but UBI in terms of developing nations as well, how would you think the strategy plays out differently from, you know, providing countries with um, that are underdeveloped because obviously they need, there are basic needs for them. Uh, rather than you know the U.S. or England, in terms of how they would uh, go ahead and, and spend that money. Yeah, well, here you know here's the interesting thing, Matt. I think about that question, which is, you know, in some sense the conversations look very different. You look here in the U.S., we're concerned about the impacts of AI and automation, and we're concerned that in the future there may be a lot of job loss and unemployment, underemployment. You go to a lot of developing countries, and they're dealing with a lot of unemployment and underemployment right now. Right, sort of young men and women in their 20s and 30s that are just not able to get jobs or not able to get the jobs they thought that would be available to them based on the education they've got. And so, you know, just you know, incredible rates of unemployment. And so they're having to rethink social policy on the fly there. So, you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, I don't expect that the impacts, like the numbers we get from our study, are going to be the same everywhere. Um, but I think that there's a great opportunity to look at, at what's happening in the emerging markets now and the impacts that social reforms like basic income there have and ask what can we learn from that for the US in 10 or 20 years from now, um, if in fact we do start to see some of this, um, this automation and these layoffs. So, you know, I think first and foremost, that's how I think about it. Got it. So I actually have a question, a little off topic, but regarding um, uh, the cryptocurrency market. So in terms of Ethereum, and we're seeing a lot of things with NFTs right now, and um, clearly there's extreme potential with it, right? Um, so how would you see it playing out for NFTs to kind of dive into, let's just say, estates or um, real estate in general and um, th that type of terminology and documents? Do you think that there would, there's going to be a future, um, a future aspect for that where we deal with all this through the Ether um, blockchain? Yeah, I think, I mean, here's, here's where there have been points of contact between what we've been doing and that, that movement, that community. First and foremost, it's been, you know, a very generous community from our perspective. A lot of people who have made significant donations of uh, Ethereum or Bitcoin. And, um, that's great. I think that obviously this is kind of a community that loves digital payments and loves to see that happening in the emerging markets as well as the developed ones. And so, um, so you know, we've been really grateful for that. And I think that's been, a, that's been exciting to partner in that way. You know, in terms of the problems that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't think there is yet an obvious use case. Um, you know, most of the people that we're serving are going to be using some form of digital currency. For some of them, it's going to be for the first time as they're starting to use mobile money, which is what we, we usually use to send transfers to people. Um, you know, I think it's still more comfortable for them to get the money in shillings and or, you know, whatever the local currency is. And, um, you know, that's also the currency in which they spend their money at the local shop for now. And so it makes most sense for them to receive it in that way. Um, so I think that will largely stay the way it is. Um, we move a lot of money across borders, give directly and at some of these other uh, companies that have been involved in starting. And so um, those markets are very opaque and sometimes the spreads can be quite high. The process can be very slow. It can take days for 
or even weeks for payments to settle cross borders. And so, you know, that's an area where I could see if sort of volume in some of these cryptocurrencies picks up, that this could become an enabler, you know, for much more competition and much, much better terms um, on sort of cross border payments. Um, and so that's something I think we typically keep an eye on. And then the other thing that's been really striking, right, is to look at some places like Venezuela or Zimbabwe that are experiencing hyperinflation and just, you know, real issues with the sort of fiat government-backed currency where, you know, in spite of the fact that it's obviously a very risky asset, something like Bitcoin actually looks attractive to people as a relatively safe haven. And so, um, you know, I think that's the other sort of application in the emerging markets that's been pretty compelling that we've seen. I want to ask you similar, uh, you know, on this, uh, I would say it's a logistic question where, you know, Matt was telling me that Give Directly has basically a 99 to 100% uh, rating in terms of how efficiently you guys distribute funds. And obviously, you know, you've given out, I believe it's 759,000 people direct money. Um, can you walk us through what that process looks like? and how your particular organization has been so successful, right? In directly giving money and how do you, uh, you know, measure your success uh, in terms of just actually the distribution of that money? Great. Yeah, well, you know, as you can imagine, it's different. You know, we work in eight countries. We've worked in, you know, with different partners, different funders who've had different objectives and criteria and so forth. And so, um, you know, various place to place, but I'll sort of tell you what a typical or default or central scenario might look like for us, um, you know, which is, the you know, first step in the process is figuring out to whom you want to transfer the money. And then the second step is getting it to them. Um, and that first step involves a fair bit of work and historically a lot of boots on the ground, people going out into communities, finding people that meet criteria, um, maybe as simple as where you live, right? People who live in poor places and then making sure that they're registered for mobile money or for whatever digital payment solution we want to use and that they're able to receive payments. Um, and then second is sort of sending is, you know, actually sending the payment, transmitting it through that mechanism. And, uh, you know, so the, um, the sort of things that have been changing for us in the last couple of years that I think have been very exciting, you know, first with the pandemic, that first step has had to go entirely virtual, right, entirely remote. And we found some really exciting ways to do that. We have this uh, project in Togo, for example, with the government where it's entirely based on cell phone metadata um, analyzed using machine learning algorithms from folks at Berkeley. Um, so some really kind of neat cutting edge stuff, I think, that's being picked up now and used in other places that's exciting. Um, and then through all of this, we're making a lot of use of the phone, right? So we, you know, the mobile money feature or aspect of this is exciting and the thing that, we, that people often think about, but uh, the opportunity to make plain old vanilla phone calls to people and check in and see if they're getting money or if they're having issues or coach them through a problem, things like that, um, that's really essential too. So, um, you know, so that's sort of what the nuts and bolts of it look like. And then in terms of, you know, what numbers do we look at? Um, you know, we, we look at how much of the money actually gets to the people that it's meant to reach, you know, and sort of, you know, one minus that is how much fraud was there, how much corruption. And so, you know, we're proud of that. I think a lot of NGOs, it's a taboo word. It's something they don't like to talk about, or there's this myth that there is no corruption. And, you know, for us, I think we're very open about it. And I think some of my best experiences building Give Directly has been to say, you know, it's an issue and, and we think we're pretty good at dealing with it. The worst cases we've had, you know, we've lost maybe half a percent of a round of transfers to a, to a fraud incident. But, but uh, by being very open about that, I think it helps to build trust um, with people who understand how, how the real world works. And, um, so that's gonna be one. Um, we're gonna look at sort of recipient comprehension. So one thing we can do in these phone calls is just check if people understand the program and how it works and if they're satisfied, you know, if they feel like they've been treated respectfully and have things explained to them clearly. Um, so there's sort of a customer service element of this. And what's nice about that is we can feed that back into performance evaluation for our field staff as well, um, that they're getting measured and monitored on those metrics that we care about. 
Um, and then, of course, you know, the overall efficiency of it is a big one, right? What share of every dollar that is given to us are we ultimately able to put into people's hands? And so, you know, varies a bit place to place. I think historically, we've typically been able to do about 90% of every dollar. Um, and one thing that we've made a real point of is to be very open with people about the cost structure and not to slip into this world of, you know, don't worry about it because magically somebody else is covering the costs. And so every dollar you give is going to go directly to them. Because I actually think in the long run, it's counterproductive. Like what's helpful is to actually understand the cost of doing stuff and figure out who's good at it and ask if there are ways to make it cheaper and understand, you know, at one place it costs 5% more than another place and think about whether that's worth paying that additional cost. And so um, we view that as part of our role. And I think your point on openness and, and being as transparent about as transparent as you can about it is the right way to do it, right? Because that way uh, you can attract more, probably more partners to partner with you and, and you know give you more resources to do more uh, to give you know more direct aid. I do have a question for you. Let me let me say one one thing about that, if I might, Ibrahim, is just in case there are anyone out there that's thinking about getting started or getting started is, I think it's a it's a communication strategy that you have to commit to from the beginning. Because if you don't, if you go for a long time of saying things are good, things are good, and then at some point you say, you know what, let's let's be a bit more open about this, then you know there's going to be some disappointed expectations and people that feel like you haven't been entirely upfront. So, um, you know, it's one of those choices that you want to make early, not one of those that you want to think about five years in. And I think that's why a lot of nonprofits, uh, you know, fail early on in the stage, right? Because they present to their audience or the people they're catering towards this utopic view of what they're trying to do and they try to hide some of uh, you know some of some of the some of the aspects of the nonprofit uh, that are that are not as attractive to people and, and in your case you have not done that right you've been as honest as possible and you've actually been at the forefront of trying to make this this field uh, more more accessible to people. And I mean, you publish your data online and it's been really fascinating to look at, but in terms of the long-term, if, if governments start to you know, give UBI more consistently, your organization has been really effective in terms of you know, limiting uh, misuse of those funds. How can governments uh, you know, use some of those same strategies? Do you think it's possible for a big government to you know, even have an effective cost strategy or do you think that's just, these these things are just bound to happen in, in, in large in large scale uh, instances of UBI. Yeah, I mean there are many that do it and that do it well, and there have been some real remarkable successes during the pandemic. Right, many governments have imposed lockdowns, and at the same time, recognizing that this is going to cause real economic hardship for people, you know, responded with new cash transfer programs that they've had to spin up very quickly, um, and the numbers are just staggering. You know, I think it was around 1.2 billion people. Um, at the peak that we're sort of receiving some incremental cash transfer in the developing world, right, as part of this response. And so, you know, the, the ability to do that and to do it at scale and, you know, yeah, it's not perfect. And look, my, my sort of academic background, a lot of my research is in anti-corruption. And so, so we work with our partners in government on precisely these problems. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people sort of um, have this view that, it, you know, NGOs are the ones who do things well and innovatively and then governments follow. And, and for some things that's true, but actually with cash transfers, I think it's more been the other way around. It's been governments in the emerging markets who have been the leaders, both in sort of choosing to do this and then in figuring out how to do it. Um, and it's often us, you know, the wealthy donors in the richer countries that are still catching up. So going back um, to your, because this is really interesting. I worked on a project um, with this in college. Um, and so it, it seems like, because there's a program or a website called Charity Navigator, and they kind of distinguish the good charities from the bad charities per se. 
And you, so notably Wounded Warriors pro, uh, Project, they're huge, right? And it turns out that they actually have a 70% rate. And it turns out that if you have less than 80%, then there's fun, there's funnelings of funneling of cash going somewhere, right? And you guys are under 98% rate, which is remarkable. And I commend you guys for that because that truly is great. Uh, so what, what do you think goes on behind closed doors? And how do you think that donors um, can like fl uh, fly away from that? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So, you know, the way I first the way I think about uh, what a site like Charity Navigator can and can't tell you is it, it provides you this sort of basic first pass of like, is there appropriate accountability and governance structure in place? Right? Are there kind of any sort of real big red flags here where you'd say like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and in some cases there are, you know, and so I haven't looked into Wounded Warrior, you know, maybe in that, that's an example of that. Um, and so, so I think that's a good first thing to do to check before you're, you know, thinking about giving to a nonprofit. What it doesn't tell you is, you know, what impact do the programs actually have? So you could run a completely clean, completely tight organization. There's no money wasted. Everything goes exactly where you say it's going to go. And it just turns out that the thing you're doing isn't all that impactful, right? And so there's nothing dishonest about it. There's nothing fraudulent. It's just not the best use of money. And so I think that's actually the bigger issue. I think that people often, you know, worry about sort of outright fraud or theft in charities. And it's not to kind of, you know, to, to neglect that issue or to, to ignore it. But I think that the bigger issue is simply people doing things that are well-intentioned and doing them as they said they would, um, but not being accountable to any sort of discipline, you know, any accountability to, uh, to see if it's actually the best thing that we could be doing with the money. Right? And the key difference there is that there's no, you know, not unlike with firms, there's no market test, right? So if you're giving people something for free, it may not be a very good use of money from their point of view, but they're going to take it because it's free. Um, you can't get away with that when you're selling things, right? Because if what you're selling isn't worth what people have to pay for it, no one buys it, you go out of business pretty quickly. You know, no one goes out of business that way in the nonprofit sector. So to me, I think that's actually the bigger issue. Yeah. Um... You know, I think we talked about a lot of different topics, but one thing I remember you mentioning was uh, automation and you slightly went over it, but, you know, studying artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, it's, I, you know, when I'm studying that type of stuff, I, I, I just see all the possibilities in the future. We're going to, uh, you know, the world's going to be entirely different in my view. And I think that there's going to be some really negative consequences in the future as a result of machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, uh, as for like the job market. Um, do you think there's a solution for that? Do you think UBI is like a solution for that? Or, or, or do you think there's any other pre, uh, preliminary like steps we could take to uh, prevent uh, uh, any uh, job, uh, you know, help those people out that lose jobs potentially? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me say a few things quickly. You know, so first, I just in terms of the premise of the question, you know, this isn't something that I do or have looked deeply into. Others have more so than I. Um, you know, predicting the future is a thankless game, and I've I've largely limited myself to telling people things that we've already learned and they just hadn't heard about, which is a much easier job. Um, but you know, I'd say that you know the sort of you know leading indicators we've seen on this, where people have looked at things like what's happened to labor markets, where there's been greater uptake of you know industrial robots and automation and things like that. You know, you do see these meaningful impacts on unemployment, underemployment. So, to the extent we can see some of these things happening now, it seems like there's probably a there there. Um, and the second big thing I'd say, and this sort of then ties into the well, what do we do about it? 
is, you know, if you look, certainly if you look at the experience with, um, you know, trade and opening up to China, the impact that that's had on our economy, the deindustrialization of the United States, like the places really matter a lot. Um, and one of the things that I think economists were really guilty of, and, and this isn't original to me, a lot of people think this, is um, sort of implicitly having in our heads the assumption that if people lost the job in one place, they'd move somewhere else to get a new one, right? So that as long as there are good jobs being created somewhere in the economy, the big picture things are going to be all right. Um, and it turns out that people don't want to pick up their lives and move across the country to go somewhere else and chase a job, you know, when the place they live is the place that they see as home. And, um, you know, what they want is actually some, some vision, some path forward for that place, for that town, for that city, um, so that people can stay there and still be happy and productive. So, um, you know, I think that there will maybe a sort of a similar set of issues to think about with automation is that impacts different parts of the country differently and to realize that um, our, our strategy for dealing with it is going to have to be geographic um, to some extent. Um, you know, I think the second big thing is, you know, every, people sort of rightly uh, critique or uh, UBI and say, well, you know, it's fine in terms of sheltering people or, or, you know, it may not be UBI, but it might be policies that start to look more like UBI, like much more generous and unconditional, you know, uh, compensation to people who lose their jobs, for example. Um, you know, but sort of policies that move us in that direction, you know, they address one part of the issue, which is, you know, livelihoods and being able to support yourself and live with a certain level of dignity. Um, you know, they don't address the issue, which is that, you know, I think most people actually want to do something productive and to be of value to others, um, even if it's just narrowly within their family or community. Um, and so I don't see UBI as a solution. I don't see it as necessarily an impediment to that, right? So I don't see in the data this sort of idea that people will do less of that because they're getting the UBI. Um, but, you know, there's still this question of what will people do that, um, that will sort of give them a sense of self-worth and of contribution, which I think matters a lot as well. So, you know, that's something to keep an eye on in a lot of these early pilots, right, that are happening in the U.S. is whether you see people, you know, switching into doing things with their time that are perhaps uncompensated, but that still give them a sense of contribution and of dignity and of self-worth. Um, that would be sort of high on my list of things to watch. Yeah, just, just a quick follow-up to that. I know you've researched in a lot of different developing nations. Has the... Um... Has automation impacted any of those countries uh, severely or, uh, you know, in regarding job loss or, or any effects on uh, 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 poverty? No, not really. I mean, really, the concern in a lot of these places is that they've missed the boat in terms of industrialization. You know, that sort of the opportunity to build sort of like capital intensive, relatively low skilled industries and export that stuff to, uh, to the rich countries, to the rich markets. That's already been seized elsewhere and the sort of you know, prices have been pushed down so low. That there just isn't a meaningful opportunity to do that now in some of these other countries that are you know kind of developing a bit later and so the big questions people ask are you know is there some way for people to make the leap straight from being you know kind of small-scale agricultural workers farmers into tertiary sectors like services and things like that like what would that even look like is are we talking about trying to train farmers to become programmers or you know that just seems like a leap too far so those are the kinds of tough questions people are typically grappling with that are sort of related i guess to automation and I think, and I think that's just something that I think more of the developed countries are going to have to deal with in the future, as opposed to the underdeveloped. Um, I do want to ask you about something you mentioned earlier about the length of these experiments in cities like Stockton in California. I believe their experiment lasted two to three years, and obviously they supported uh, a lot of the other, you know, conclusions in previous research that people were using the money generally to, you know, uh, spend it on necessities, things like groceries, paying their rent. Uh, and actually using added uh, money coming in, right? Using that money to find other jobs and, and, and you know, getting better jobs in some cases. 
does, but the, but we haven't really seen a large scale UVI experiment that extends over the period of, let's say 10 to 20 years. I mean, the only example I can think of in the United States, at least is Alaska, right? Where they've been using oil revenues, right? As a way to give around a thousand or two thousand dollars annually to every single citizen in Alaska. Um, how do we deal or grapple with that conundrum in your opinion? Does that, is that, because I, I think on a macro level that is relevant, that we haven't really seen the implications of a UBI over the course of 10 to 20 years on a large scale yet. Yeah. Well, um, you know, first let me just mention and highlight some cool research um, in addition to the Alaska case. You know, Alaska obviously wasn't an experiment, but people have done some nice work trying to compare people living in Alaska to hopefully fairly similar people living elsewhere. But, you know, that's a tough exercise, as you can imagine. Um, there has been some really nice work in the U.S. that looks at, and this is going to sound very, uh, very funny and very specific, but it's really quite creative and clever. So it looks at Native American populations when a casino opens up nearby and they start to receive dividend payments from the casino, uh, because that's part of the way that these uh, deals are structured. And so essentially you have people that are all kind of living in the same neighborhood, and then suddenly some of them, because they happen to have Native American ancestry, start to receive these payments that their neighbors are not. And so you get this relatively clean experiment, right, where you can see what this long-term stream of payments does to those households, their kids and things like that. So, uh, so we do know a bit from that, but, but I think that the broad point is still exactly right, right? That there's sort of very little in the US that goes uh, to these kinds of scales or durations. Um, I think in terms of scale, I, I don't see it happening in the sense that there's nothing in the US that's analogous to a village in Kenya, where you could say, you know, let's kind of, you know, everything's a big suburb here, right? So you can't really do the same kind of experiment that we can get away with in Kenya. Um, you know, in terms of duration, though, somebody could totally do it. Somebody could say, you know, we're going to take a bunch of people and commit to giving them a basic income at what we think is sort of the right U.S. number for 10 or 20 years. And, you know, people usually look at that and say, oh, well, but it would cost a lot of money compared to this Kenya project, you know, which is like 35, 40 million dollars or whatever. It costs like multiples of that. And I mean, sure, but like there are lots of people that could write that check, so they should do it. Yeah, I agree with you that. Um... You know, it, it's hard to use a similar model across different areas. Like you mentioned, there's different problems in each of these different areas. And you've you've been conducting the research at least, Dan. Um, and again, I'm, I'm we're we're asking a lot of long-term questions here, but I do have to ask you on a political level. Um, you know, you in the United States, and you mentioned you know a, a lot of people during the pandemic were on receiving some sort of cash transfers. Uh, again, it's hard to predict the future, but do you see uh, do you see UBI as a policy that's here to stay on a political and economic level, uh, or do you think that uh, because one criticism of UBI that I have to mention here is again I don't agree with this. But a lot of people say that a lot of big tech companies have been sponsoring a lot of UBI research because uh, you know they fear that a lot of jobs are going to be lost, and so they have been on the forefront. Uh, of sponsoring the UBI research, which I think is not a valid argument in my opinion, but uh, sort of looking at it from a political lens, what's your opinion on the practical application of UBI? Yeah, well, and you know, look, I, I haven't been deep in the US politics of it. Others have obviously, but you know, I think first, you know, my, the, the first important thing to recognize is that while there is interest on it from a lot of different uh, perspectives and partisan points of view, um, when rubber hits the road, people are actually talking about somewhat different things in the sense that on the left, I think there's a lot of interest in this as something that we might do incremental to things that are already being done in terms of social policies and that we pay for with additional taxes. And it might in fact be taxes on, you know, on the wealthy, taxes on capital, taxes on robots, things like that. 
Um, on the right, I think there's interest in it, but it's more from the perspective of you know, skepticism of existing government programs, of the bureaucracy that they entail, of the incentives, the disincentives that they create for people to work. And saying something like this that's unconditional and simple would be more attractive to me. So I'd like to replace the existing safety net with something that looks more like that. And so, you know, sort of ground zero, I think, for a discussion about the politics of this is just recognizing that those are fundamentally very different propositions. And so, you know, there may superficially be bipartisan interest, but um, at that level, I think it's, um, it, there isn't a lot of alignment yet. Um, you know, in terms of what's realistic, you know, I think we're now seeing this movement back towards, in general, more cash-based programming um, and less conditional programming in the U.S., which is a swing back from a, you know, sort of a movement in the other direction that perhaps peaked during welfare reform in the 1990s, right, under Bill Clinton, um, when there was this shift towards more conditionality, more monitoring, more in-kind. You know, I think one of the big interesting things for me is what will be the lasting impact, if any, of the pandemic on our acceptance of this. Um, you know, in the conversations that I've had with donors, it's been what's made it such a fascinating year is that, you know, first people have been very generous, um, which is wonderful and deeply appreciated. Um, you know, Give Directly received more than $300 million last year, largely to help, you know, respond to the pandemic. Um, but second, I think that that's driven by a lot of people recognizing that, hey, people are having a hard time and it's not their fault, right? It was something that was beyond their control. And so I think for me, there's this question of will the recognition of that extend to other things that are beyond our control, right? Like where you happen to be born, for example, which is also something that we don't have much influence over. Um, and recognize that that's also something that has a profound impact on people's lives, but that they can't change or can't be held responsible for. So, um, you know, I think that's part of our job now at GiveDirectly is to, to kind of help people to bridge that gap. Um, and, you know, I think politically, that's going to be one of the interesting things to see, you know, do people take away from this that, boy, you know, sometimes the unthinkable just happens and we should design policies in a way that uh, anticipates that. I think it's so fascinating, uh, the, the thing you mentioned about, you know, the varying, you know, the varying differences in how people on the left and the right conceive of a UBI, you know, on the right, I've seen a lot of arguments made by primarily by libertarians where they see UBI as a concept, like you said, right, that replaces the existing welfare and kind of, you know, uh, the government institutes a flat tax and everybody gets uh, some sort of a basic income, but on conditionality. But again, that's not really UBI. It's not universal. And then on the left, uh, it's, it's a completely different argument there. And I think I want to also comment on something you mentioned during the Bill Clinton administration, the welfare program created then. And, and in my opinion, this, this, this conception that those who are impoverished, right, spend money uh, excessively and not on the right things kind of stemmed in the 1980s. And that sort of welfare, in my opinion, uh, that conception of welfare that those who are in need of money don't spend it in the right ways is just, you know, misguided. And to me, that your research has, has uh, you know, and, and, and others research has proven that people, when people, those people who actually need money, they spend money. Uh, and what Andrew Yang likes to call this a trickle up economy where people are constantly, you know, spending their money and uh, vitalizing local businesses, uh, etc. And so um, I think there, there, there's going to be a massive change in how people perceive of just basic unconditional payments. We've already seen that most Americans support some sort of a basic income. I think there was a poll done recently where 60 to 70% of Americans were actually for the idea of having continuing on the stimulus payments, right? Much longer, uh, and that's understandable, but it's fascinating to me that finally, you know, people are starting to understand that 
people who don't have the right resources, they don't just blow money. They actually utilize that money on basic needs. And that in turn just creates a trickle up economy rather than a trickle down economy, right? Where we just stop taxing the rich and we assume that uh, those, it, 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 those who are wealthy are going to, you know, uh, pay their fair share or, or stimulate the economy. So I think that's just, I just want to make a comment. Yeah, and here's, you know, I think that's right. And here's the thing that would be very interesting that I haven't seen. I don't know if you have or if the polling that you mentioned spoke to it, which is, I think there are actually two very distinct uh, doubts or concerns that people have um, about, you know, government helping folks when they're having a hard time. I think one is the concern that, you know, if we give them too much freedom over what kind of help it is, if we give them money and let them, you know, as you say, that they may spend it on the wrong things. But but another is that, you know, if we promise to help people, then they're not going to do as much to help themselves in the first place, whether we're giving them money, food, whatever it is that we're giving them, right? Um, and I think that concern, right, that we're sort of going to bail people out who weren't willing to make the, do the hard work and make the effort to look after themselves. Um, if anything, I think that's maybe the bigger one. Um, and so I'd be very interested to see sort of polling on UBI that gets separately of these two different, I think, kind of core doubts, fears, mistrust people have. Um, about social insurance and, and sort of how people, how UBI is resonating with people in those two dimensions, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, during the simulation checks, did your organization see any increase in donations or decrease, or was there any correlation between when the pandemic was happening and the amount of, you know, donations you guys were receiving? Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned this briefly, but there was, I mean, it was a massive year for GiveDirectly. We, we GiveDirectly was received over $300 million in 2020, which is, you know, multiples of what we had done the previous year. And so, um, and that's, you know, clearly and unambiguously because of the pandemic response work that we were doing, um, you know, a bit less than half of that went to programming in Africa that we ran, a bit more than half of that went to programming in the U.S., which we stood up for the first time, right? We, you know, had done a few one-off projects in the U.S. before, but last year was the first time that we built anything that was sustained or of this magnitude in the U.S., um, and by the way, credit to the team because they stood this up in the course of about 10 days, you know, from kind of initial inception to having something ready. Um, so that was a really exciting experience. Yeah, and, you know, just one more uh, follow-up question. Do you guys, uh, from your data, how do you guys, uh, how do you guys um, uh, kind of quantify social um social changes so like for example do you guys quantify uh happiness or satisfaction or or any of these like more uh unquantifiable uh metrics in your guys's researches or or, or um in it, from your data do you guys do that or yeah yeah well you know generally our approach to this has been that we don't as an organization have a definition of like what the right outcomes are where we'd say you know success is seeing this metric go up by this much dollar. Um, rather, our view has been that, you know, we're committed to rigorous evaluation in the sense that it's going to be credible and we can say with confidence that these are the average effects that this uh, program is having. And we'll try to look at a pretty broad array of outcomes typically so that, you know, you can then look at them and say, here's what I think of that. And here's how I feel about that as a donor. You know, and partly that's because exactly because we want to provoke this conversation of like, what is success actually? And if different people have a different view of it, if some people are doing one thing, some people are doing another thing, how do we feel about that as donors? So, um, you know, that, that list of things that we look at often does include, when we, when we run an experiment, it often does include a lot of these more subjective measures of well-being um, and of happiness. What we typically are going to do there is use standard scales that other social scientists use. So, for example, there are measures of depression 
um, that are standard. They're used in a lot of research and also used for clinical diagnosis, um, like the CESD scale. So we'll use things like that. Um, we'll use other concepts from psychology, like locus of control, aspirations, things like that. I think these things are imperfect. Um, and, you know, especially in the UBI project, I think where we have some time to really think and talk to people about how they perceive success in a good life. Um, I'd like for us to be innovative there and think of uh, even better things we can do. But, but I think this gives us a pretty comprehensive picture, surely as comprehensive as we have for any other kind of intervention that we have out there, sort of what's happening to people's psychological, emotional, social lives as a result of the transfers. And I think um, as you collect more data, you'll probably have a good under more of a better understanding of, of these different metrics. Um, on that note, I think we talked about a lot of issues and topics. Uh, thank you so much for being so kind and answering our different uh, variety of questions. We appreciate your time and best of luck to you uh, in your in the research you're doing. And we just really want to thank you for the work that Give Directly has done because I really do think that you guys have started, uh, you know. Uh, started a movement, I would say, uh, of these cash transfers uh, and of large amounts of money being given directly to people. And we're seeing the positive repercussions of that. So I appreciate you. Hey, man, thank you. It was a lot of fun to hang out with you guys. And, um, you know, just in general, it was fun, good energy, enjoyed the questions on point. But also, I think the reality is that a lot of stuff like this changes slowly and changes generationally. You know, there's this, uh, this famous book about how things change in science. You'd think that scientists would be among the quickest, you know, the most evidence-based and fact-based and the quickest to adopt good new ideas when they come along. It turns out it's often the old guys who did it the old way die <laughs> and the young guys pick up the flag and do it the new way. So I think a lot of this stuff is going to be that way as well. And so uh, it's really fun to get to talk to you guys about it. Of course, that's our goal here, just to, you know, kind of open up the minds of new listeners and see if they're willing to adapt to a new ideology. So I, again, I commend you guys on everything. Thanks, Matt.